Welcome to the Case Collective podcast. Hosted by Barry Nelson Lawyers, Case Collective is a monthly discussion covering significant decisions handed down by courts across Australia. We'll keep you updated on major developments in case law and how they're likely to affect the Australian insurance industry and beyond. Now for our latest episode. Welcome to Case Collective. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw. I'm a senior associate at Barry Nielsen Lawyers based in Brisbane. For this episode, I'm joined by Beth Royan, who is a graduate at Barry Nielsen. Case Collective is packed with interesting cases this month, including a decision with massive ramifications coming out of the New South Wales Court of Appeal regarding who was responsible for the damage caused by the Queensland floods, a successful decline of indemnity in relation to what was effectively an employment claim brought under a professional risk policy, the High Court's decision about who is deemed to be a publisher on Facebook, and a successful claim against a lawyer and a real estate agent regarding an uninhabitable granny flat. So, Beth, without any further ado, let's get started. Thanks, Kingsley. The first case note is water authority levels, a damn good defence. This relates to New South Wales Court of Appeal decision, Queensland Bulk Water Supply Authority and Rodriguez and Sons, PTY LTD. Just a little bit of a heads up, this is a little bit of a long case note. The original judgment is over 100 pages long. So bear with me because it has some really interesting points. The New South Wales Court of Appeal set aside a finding at first instance that the Queensland Bulk Water Supply Authority was liable in negligence for damage arising out of the 2011 Brisbane floods. The New South Wales Court of Appeal allowed SEQ Waters appeal and held that it had not breached the lowest standard of care required of public authorities under Section 36 of the Queensland Civil Liability Act. So in summary, the issues were, firstly, in assessing SEQ Waters' conduct, was the standard of care to be applied reasonable care under Section 9 of the Queensland Civil Liability Act? Or rather, was it the lower standard required of public authorities under Section 36 of the CLA? Secondly, did SEQ Water and the flood engineers breach their duties of care to persons with an interest in land when conducting their flood operations and when releasing water from Wyvernhoe Dam? And finally, the case also considered the vicarious liability of SEQ Water causation, the apportionment of liability and the plaintiff's entitlement to damages for services provided by volunteers. Turning now to the background. During January 2011, southeast Queensland experienced torrential rainfall. SEQ Water owned and operated the Wyvernhoe and Somerset dams in southeast Queensland. It employed two of four flood engineers who undertook flood operations at the dams. The dams both supplied water to southeast Queensland and mitigated flooding in the Brisbane River Valley region by storing water at the peak of heavy rainfall. The conduct of the flood operations was regulated by a flood operations manual, which required the engineers to use rainfall forecasts to determine appropriate strategies and water releases. On the morning of 11 January 2011, the flood engineers released a large volume of water from the Wyvernhoe Dam. The release of water combined with heavy rainfall in the Brisbane River catchment and its tributaries flooded homes and businesses in the surrounding areas. The plaintiff, Rodriguez and Sons, PTYLTD, commenced representative proceedings against several defendants, including SEQ Water, 
on behalf of nearly 7,000 persons or entities that had an interest in land or property and had been impacted by the inundation of flood water. At first instance, the Supreme Court of New South Wales determined that SEQ water had breached the standard of care required of it under Section 9 of the CLA, being the ordinary standard of a failure to take reasonable precautions against a foreseeable and not insignificant risk of harm. The attenuated standard of care for public authorities, as outlined in Section 36, Subsection 2 of the CLA, did not apply because the trial judge considered that the proceeding was not one based on an alleged wrongful exercise or failure to exercise a function of public or other authority. The issue of whether Section 36 of the CLA applied turned on the proper construction of Section 9, Subsection 2 of the South East Queensland Water Restructuring Act. This was the legislation under which SEQ water had been established. The trial judge interpreted Section 9, Subsection 2 of the Restructuring Act as conferring statutory power only to the extent that SEQ water's functions were consistent with its operational and strategic plans. On the basis that SEQ water did not have an operational or strategic plan, His Honour found that SEQ water did not exercise a function of a public authority for the purposes of Section 36, Subsection 1 of the CLA. So overall, the New South Wales Supreme Court held that the flood engineers had failed to take reasonable care and that the flood engineers' acts or omissions would be attributed to their employer and accordingly, SEQ Water was liable. After examining the role played by each of the flood engineers, the trial judge apportioned 50% of the damages against SEQ Water. The issues contended by SEQ Water on appeal were that the flood mitigation operations were an exercise of function of a public or other authority, and that as a consequence, the applicable standard of care ought to have been the standard outlined in Section 36, Subsection 2 of the CLA, as opposed to the ordinary standard referred to at Section 9 of the CLA. The New South Wales Court of Appeal considered, firstly, whether the proceeding was one that concerned the alleged wrongful exercise of or a failure to exercise function of a public or other authority. And secondly, whether the standard of care used to assess SEQ Waters' conduct at trial was the applicable standard. The New South Wales Court of Appeal rejected the reasoning of the trial judge that SEQ Water was not exercising a function of a public or other authority on the following basis. Firstly, Section 9 of the Restructuring Act conferred functions to carry out water activities, which was defined in the Queensland Water Act to include flood pre prevention and flood water control. Secondly, SEQ Water held a resource operations licence which authorised it to interfere with the flow of water in the rivers for flood mitigation purposes. Thirdly, the functions exercised by SEQ Water were dependent on the statutory creation of SEQ Water as the owner of the dams. And finally, the reference to operational and strategic plans in Section 9, Subsection 1 should not be read so as to deprive SEQ Water of its role as defined by the Restructuring Act. The Court of Appeal found that the release of water in a controlled manner by SEQ Water was an exercise of its statutory function under Section 9, Subsection 1 of the Restructuring Act. It considered that it was not possible to read the reference to function in Section 36, Subsection 1 of the CLA as not encompassing SEQ Water's flood mitigation activities performed in January 2011.
It was necessary for the plaintiff to establish that SEQ Waters' conduct constituted an act or omission which was, in the circumstances, so unreasonable that no public or other authority in question could properly consider the act or omission to be a reasonable exercise of its function. The New South Wales Court of Appeal found the standard of care under section 36, subsection 2 is a curious form of expression, which differed from the test of unreasonableness which is applied at common law. Chief Justice Bathurst and Justice Beasley in Curtis and Harden Shire Council, considering an equivalent New South Wales provision, noted that the language envisages a range of opinions as to what might constitute a reasonable act or reasonable failure to act, but asks if no public authority properly considering the issue could place it within that range. The Court of Appeal examined SEQ Waters' conduct, including, inter alia, the reliance on rain on ground forecasts, certain assumptions made by the flood engineers, the termination of the December flood event and the opening of the sluice gates at Somerset. Ultimately, it was concluded that there was no evidence tendered that acts of the flood engineers were so unreasonable that no dam operator with the flood mitigation function of SEQ water could properly consider them to be a reasonable exercise of that function. The fact that the flood engineers all well-trained and experienced, reached consensus as to the steps to be taken throughout the flood event, pointed against their and SEQ Waters' conduct, satisfying the test imposed by Section 36, Subsection 2. As there was no breach of duty, SEQ Water was not liable in negligence. The Court of Appeal also found that SEQ Water owed a duty of care to downstream persons and entities with interest in land and or property, and that it was vicariously liable for the acts of flood engineers that it employed. The acts constituted potentially wrongful conduct so as to engage Section 36, Subsection 1 of the CLA. It was emphasised that if a public authority can only exercise a function through the medium of a trained profession, it would be surprising if the standard of care applied to it differed from that applied to its agents. What was important was the period over which the engineers breached the appropriate standard of care and the time at which the window of opportunity for pre-releases to create flood storage volume closed. It was not necessary to cut and dice a particular course of conduct to determine separate specific breaches which could be attributed to the damage caused at particular properties. Since the Court of Appeal concluded that SEQ Water was not liable to the plaintiff or group members, it was not appropriate to address the question of apportionment on a contingent basis. However, it specifically noted that SEQ Water was the sole party responsible as licensee for controlling the release of water from the dams into the Brisbane River. Thanks, Beth. A, a hugely consequential case for the parties involved in circumstances where it is uh, if not the largest, one of one of the largest class actions that that have ever been litigated in Australia. So clearly, huge consequences for those involved. Um, in terms of the law going forward, is there anything you'd pick out as as being of significance? One thing uh, that may be quite significant is what it means for the future interpretation of Section Thirty Six, Subsection Two of the CLA and in particular when that will apply to public authorities or other entities exercising the function of public authorities. 
Absolutely. And and another interesting feature of this this litigation, obviously, is that the other defendants and the plaintiff reached a settlement agreement in between the time of the first instance decision and the appeal. Mm. So interesting consequences arising out of that. And and no doubt serious consideration is being given to to an appeal. So I guess watch this space. The next case note is claims arising out of employment excluded under professional indemnity policy. It relates to a Queensland Supreme Court decision, namely Core Staff and Insurance Australia Limited. The Supreme Court of Queensland was asked to determine a dispute between an insured and insurer over the construction of two exclusion clauses in a professional indemnity policy. In particular, the clause's application to an Australian consumer law claim for misleading and deceptive conduct. Core staff NT PTY LTD was a labour on hire business. In 2011 and 2012, Core staff sent letters of offer to several individuals, including Alloy Jack, a metal fabricator who resided in Papua New Guinea. Core staff offered Mr. Jack a three year full time employment contract as a metal fabricator on a mine site in Western Australia for a salary of 115000 plus superannuation. Mr. Jack accepted the offer, resigned from his job in PNG, and in 2012 moved to Australia to commence his employment with Core Staff. Upon moving to Australia, Mr. Jack performed work for Core Staff and its associated entities, which was different to what was detailed in his letter of offer. In November 2012, only a few months into Mr. Jack's employment contract, Core Staff terminated his employment and ceased making any payments to him. In late 2018, Mr. Jack commenced proceedings against core staff as a representative of a class of individuals who had similarly received and accepted offer letters from core staff and had later had their employment terminated. Mr. Jack alleged that core staff made representations in its offer letter as to the employment arrangements it had made and would continue to make for him, which at the time of the offer letter, it did not have reasonable grounds for making. Mr. Jack alleged that by sending the offer letter, core staff had engaged in conduct which was misleading or deceptive or was likely to mislead or deceive for the purposes of the ACL. Mr. Jack saw compensation for core staff's alleged contravention of the ACL by reference to, inter alia, the income he would have earned if he had remained in PNG. Core staff sought indemnity in respect of the class action brought by Mr. Jack and others under its professional indemnity policy with Insurance Australia Limited. While there was a section in the policy which provided employment practices liability cover, that cover was only available as an optional extension to the policy and core staff had elected not to pay for it. The insurer declined to indemnify core staff under the policy in reliance on two exclusion clauses. The exclusion clauses provided that cover was not available for claims, one, based upon directly or indirectly arising from or attributable to core staff's liability as an employer, or two, arising out of or in respect of actual or alleged unlawful discrimination or other unlawful act, error or omission by any insured against any employee or employment applicant. In February 2012, core staff applied to the Supreme Court of Queensland for declarations in respect of the proper construction of the exclusion clauses. Justice Williams delivered her decision on 10 August 2021. At trial, core staff submitted that the exclusion relating to claims attributable to liability as an employer did not apply because the class action related to misrepresentations which had occurred when Mr. Jack was an applicant for employment and not an employee. 
Cool staff submitted that the class action therefore did not concern its liability as an employer and that it was irrelevant that Mr. Jack and the other represented claimants had subsequently entered into employment contracts with it. Her Honour held that the exclusion applied to the ACL claim in the class action because inter alia, one, the words based upon directly or indirectly arising from or attributable to introduced a causal nexus which encompassed claims on a broad spectrum of causation. That opening phrase extended liability as an employer beyond claims which directly arose out of the actual employment relationship. And two, the ACL claim made in the class action arose where individuals entered into employment contracts and commenced employment with core staff in reliance on its representations. It was core staff's termination of the employment relationship which gave rise to the loss. Her Honour considered that there was a clear nexus with core staff having liability as an employer in that the employment relationship was a key material fact giving rise to the cause of action. If there had been no employment relationship, the cause of action would fail. As to the exclusion relating to unlawful discrimination, the insurer argued that the words in parentheses or other unlawful act, error or omission, which followed the words unlawful discrimination, had the effect of excluding cover for alleged unlawful acts, errors or omissions and not just unlawful discrimination. The insurer submitted that core staff's alleged contravention of the ACL was an unlawful act, error or omission and that the exclusion therefore applied to the class action. However, the court determined that the unlawful discrimination exclusion did not apply. Her Honour observed that one, if the unlawful discrimination exclusion was construed to exclude any conduct which was unlawful, it would render the words unlawful discrimination largely superfluous and would be contrary to the clear structure of the clause by rendering unlawful discrimination a mere example. Two, the preferred construction was one which gave operational work to the words unlawful discrimination and gave the words in parentheses the work of clarifying that the liability for unlawful discrimination arose whether that occurred by way of a positive act or omission. And finally, Whilst the ACL claim in the class action arguably arose out of an unlawful act, error or omission in a general sense, it did not arise out of or in respect of unlawful discrimination. Having determined that the first exclusion relating to employer liability applied, the court held that core staff's application was unsuccessful. This decision is a really good example of the importance of considering the commercial intent of policies when interpreting particular clauses. And for the insureds out there, it stresses the importance of purchasing employment practices liability if that's what you need. Thanks, Kingsley. So now we're up to the third case note, which is media outlets held to be publishers of Facebook comments. This relates to the High Court decision of Fairfax Media Publications, PTY LTD, and Dylan Voller. With social media platforms dominating the way we interact and express our views, it becomes increasingly important for media outlets to be vigilant as to what is being posted on their platforms. This recent High Court decision has found that owners of social media pages are considered publishers of comments made on their Facebook pages by third parties. The background is that in July 2017, Mr Dylan Voller commenced defamation proceedings in the Supreme Court of New South Wales against Nationwide News, Fairfax Media Publications and Australian News Channel. 
The proceedings arose out of allegedly defamatory comments made by third parties on the media company's Facebook pages. At trial, the primary judge, Justice Rotham, considered the question of whether Mr. Voller had established the publication element of the courts of action of defamation against the media companies in respect of each of the Facebook comments by third-party users. Justice Rotham ultimately decided that Mr. Voller had established the publication element of the cause of action, finding that the media companies facilitated the posting of comments on articles published in their newspapers, and the companies could not escape the likely consequences of its action by turning a blind eye. Following Justice Rotham's initial decision and dismissal of the media companies' subsequent appeals to the Court of Appeal, the media companies were granted special leave to appeal to the High Court. By a 5-2 to two majority, the High Court dismissed the media companies' appeals with costs. In doing so, the High Court rejected the contention that, to be a publisher, the media companies must have knowledge of the allegedly defamatory matter and intend to convey it. Chief Justice Kiefel, together with Justices Keane and Gleeson, stated that, the Court of Appeal was correct to hold that the acts of the media companies in facilitating, encouraging and thereby assisting the posting of comments by third-party Facebook users rendered them publishers of those comments. Justices Gagler and Gordon, also in the majority, stated that the media companies chose to operate public Facebook pages in order to engage commercially with that significant segment of the population. The media companies attempt to portray themselves as passive and unwitting victims of Facebook's functionality has an air of unreality. Having taken action to secure the commercial benefit of the Facebook functionality, the appellants bear the legal consequences. This decision emphasises the need for owners of social media pages, whether they are media companies or otherwise, to have appropriate mechanisms in place to monitor and control the ability of third parties to post content on their pages. The final case note this month we have is called Lawyers Beware, how a failure to advise on an uninhabitable granny flat left a conveyancing lawyer $76,000 out of pocket. It involves a district court decision out of New South Wales called Kumar and Sydney Western Realty. In this case, the New South Wales District Court awarded a total of $100,000 in damages to a first home buyer after it found her solicitor and real estate agent failed to appropriately advise her as to the habitability of a granny flat. Matters in issue were, one, whether a real estate agent engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct in the sale of the property, which it knew was the subject of a council prohibition notice, and two, whether a conveyancing lawyer advising the purchaser was negligent in its failure to advise on the special conditions contained in the contract for sale. By way of background, on the 26th of May 2019, the plaintiff purchased a residential investment property in Toongabbie, New South Wales. The property comprised a main house and a granny flat, which had originally been built and used as a garage. The contract for sale of the property, which was provided by the vendor to the real estate agent, included a notice from Blacktown City Council dated 21 August 2013, which read... The garage is not permitted for habitable uses as the slab floor level has insufficient freeboard protection against flooding. The property was advertised as being a house and granny flat and referred to as a fantastic opportunity for an astute investor to secure a dual income property investment. That is, both the main house and granny flat were advertised as being potential sources of rental income, despite the prohibition contained in the council notice. 
About a week before purchasing the property, the plaintiff received a full copy of the contract, including the council notice, and inspected the property with the real estate agent. There, she observed that both the main house and granny flat were occupied, though it was clear to her that the granny flat had once been a garage. Soon after, without having obtained legal advice, the plaintiff purchased the property. However, during the exchange phase of the purchase contract, the plaintiff retained the services of a lawyer to provide advice. Following completion of the purchases, and after a number of months which involved a number of changes in the tenants living at the property, the plaintiff received a $1,500 fine from the council in relation to her renting out the granny flat in contravention of the council notice. At trial, as against the real estate agent, the plaintiff alleged misleading or deceptive conduct. It was argued that because the agent became aware of the council notice, yet continued to represent that the granny flat was suitable for living purposes and a potential source of rental income, it had engaged in misleading conduct. As against the lawyer, the plaintiff brought a claim in negligence. That claim was based on an argument that the lawyer owed her a duty of care to make inquiries with counsel as to the status of the granny flat. Specifically, the habitability of the granny flat and the capacity for the plaintiff to rent it out as had been advertised and as was the plaintiff's intention. At the conclusion of trial, as against the agent, the court held that the misleading and deceptive conduct claim had been made out. In selling the property, the agent had made representations about the habitability of the granny flat that were ultimately misleading in light of its knowledge of the council notice. The court also found that the lawyer had been negligent Specifically, the court found that part of the lawyer's duty of care was to read and consider the contract for sale that his client had executed, identify features within the contract that were unusual or inimical to the purposes of the client's acquisition of the property and which might be detrimental to her interests. In those circumstances, the court awarded the plaintiff approximately $100,000 in damages and apportioned liability 25% to the agent and 75% to the lawyer. In addition, the plaintiff's damages were reduced by 15% on account of contributory negligence, which arose out of the plaintiff's own failure to seek legal advice prior to entering into the purchase contracts. While this decision doesn't tread any new ground in terms of the scope of duty owed by lawyers and conveyancing lawyers in particular, it does provide a fairly neat example of the requirement imposed upon lawyers and conveyancing lawyers to consider their client's circumstances and to advise upon all the features of a contract, particularly any unusual or special conditions. That's all we have for this episode of Case Collective. Thanks very much for joining me today, Beth. Thanks, Kingsley. Thanks for having me. No worries. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode, as well as a few more, by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time.